Psalm 106 is a companion to Psalm 105. In Psalm 105, you find out God's faithfulness to Israel. In Psalm 105, you see almost 90% of the verses begin with the word he. He did. He gave. He spoke. He, he, he. But when you come to Psalm 106, you read it on the surface and you say, well, if Psalm 105 is about the faithfulness of God to Israel, then Psalm 106 has to be about the faithlessness of Israel to God. And you could read this psalm on the surface and that's where you could very easily go to. But I agree with an old scholar named Derek Kidner who said this, that even though you have the faithlessness of Israel displayed within this psalm, the overshadowing truth of this psalm, and I'm going to quote him, is that it is a song of praise, for it is God's extraordinary long-suffering that emerges as the real theme of the psalm. Because one of the things that I have had to learn through this time is truly what is resting in the Lord by faith. But then the other thing is, what keeps us from resting in the Lord by faith? And one of the reasons that I've come up with through this psalm, that sometimes when we think we are truly at a place where we can rest in the Lord, I want to tell you something with all the love I have in you. You really don't know if you're at that place until you enter into something that you never saw come. That's when you find out where you're at. And the reason sometimes we don't rest is we're easy to forget that He's more than enough for us. If you would, please stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. I want to preach on this subject this morning, and I want you to listen to the title real, real carefully. Now, I believe. Verse 1, praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all this praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people, and O visit me with thy salvation that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation. Now here's the key to it all, that I may glory in thine inheritance. Father, would you speak through me this morning for your glory? Father, I pray that this would be far more than education, but it'd be revelation. Education makes us smart. Revelation makes us different. So, Father, would you give revelation this morning that our hearts would be impacted, our wills would be overcome. And, Father, that you would have control of our mind, motion, and will for your glory. 
In Jesus' name. And all God's children said, you may be seated. This psalm, most Bible scholars will agree, was written by an unknown psalmist at the time when Israel had just come out or began to come out of Babylonian captivity. Now you understand Israel was in captivity because of the idolatry. And they spent many years in Babylonian captivity. And when God raised up a deliverer to bring them out of that captivity, there was a remnant that went back to Jerusalem. But many of Israel chose to stay in captivity. And I believe this is the backdrop of this psalm. Because I believe whoever the author of this psalm, he was one of the remnant that came out. And he had a great desire to walk in everything God had for him and for his people, Israel. And what we find here first, this psalmist begins with a rejoicing heart. Notice what the psalmist says here in verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. Let me tell you what's going on here in the psalmist. He was saturated by God's goodness. He was saturated by God's goodness. When this psalmist, understand, spent these years in captivity, has now come out of captivity, and yet at the same time, what could he reflect upon? Nothing but the goodness and mercy of God. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you're going through conflict or you're going through difficulty, sometimes one of the last things we begin to think of is how good and merciful he's been to us. But see, this psalmist was so saturated by the thoughts of all that God had done, all the goodness and all the mercy that he had brought, that this psalmist couldn't help himself but say, Hallelujah to the Lord. That's what word praise means. But notice in verse 2, not only was this psalmist saturated by his goodness, but this psalmist was speechless by his goodness. Notice what it said. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Let me tell you what the psalmist is saying. He said, when I think about the goodness and the mercy of God, he said, I can't help myself but to try to praise him. But yet I come to the place of realizing there's not enough words in the vocabulary to describe all the goodness and glorious mercy of God. There's not enough adjectives to say about him. There's not enough good things to say. There's not enough words to speak to give justice to what God has done. Psalmist said, I'm speechless when I think of the goodness and the mercy of God. No wonder the psalmist understood that out of goodness and mercy would come obedience. And he says, blessed are they that keep judgment and he that doeth righteousness at all times. The psalmist said, I'm I'm saturated by the thoughts of his goodness. I'm speechless by the thoughts of his goodness. How can I not obey? How can I not walk in his righteousness? But then right here, you begin to get a glimpse into the heart of this psalmist. Because the psalmist goes from a rejoicing heart to a requesting heart. 
And look at this with me in verse 4 and 5. He begins by saying, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. In other words, he says, Allow me to experience the favor that you showed to Israel and to the people that I belong to. Let me get in on what you've done for them. And then he says this, visit me with thy salvation that I may see the good of thy chosen. Here was the psalmist's desire. Father, in your goodness and in your mercy, let me live long enough to see the fulfillment of your goodness and mercy in the people of Israel. All that you have for them, all that you have prepared for them, that they would walk in it and that I would see it. Boy, doesn't that sound like the Christmas story with a man called Simeon? Simeon longed to just one thing. Simeon said, I long just to see the chosen one, just to see the Messiah. And when Mary brought on that day of, of, of purification to the to the temple and Simeon was the priest on charge of that day and he says now I can die for I've seen God's chosen one you see when you understand the goodness and mercy of God you're so saturated speechless by it that you can't contain yourself until God manifests himself more and more and more so God fulfills everything he has for you. You say, well, what does God have for me? Well, listen, I can't answer that in complete truth with you. But I can tell you this. If you just study what God's already given you in his son and how God wants to work that in you and through you, that alone will take you a lifetime. And the psalmist summed it up by saying this. That I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation. And that I may glory in thine inheritance. I believe this phrase is the key that unlocks this whole song. What does he mean that I may glory in thine inheritance? Here's what he means. Father, would you allow me with the nation that you have chosen, the nation you have set aside unto yourself, would you allow them, would you allow me to walk in what you have for us, that there would be nothing upon my lips that I would boast of more than the inheritance that you have for us. There'd be nothing that would bring honor more than walking in your provision. There would be nothing that would bring joy and gladness more than walking in your provision. He said, Father, I have a request. Let me experience the favor you showed Israel. That Israel would come back to the place of walking in what you have for them. That I may glory, boast of your works. That I may glory in your inheritance. Now listen. Every one of us know this. I've preached this a million times. That Jesus Christ is your inheritance. And his victory, his peace, his joy, his long suffering. He, listen, his love, all the attributes of the Lord Jesus lived out through you. is the manifestation of his inheritance in you. And he's given you all things for life and godliness. And let me ask you a question today. When's the last time you got on your face before God and said, God, I only have one desire, that I'd glory in the inheritance that you've given me? That there'd be nothing in my life I would boast about more than your inheritance.
Oh, listen, in this Christmas season, we boast about our family. We boast about the things that entertain us. We boast about children and grandchildren. Nothing wrong with all of that. But listen, folks, there's one thing that you and I ought to desire to boast in more than any other thing, and that's till we walk in everything that He has for us. And that's what rest is. That when you know you're experiencing all that Jesus is for your life. But here's where the tenor of this psalm completely changes. Because when you get to verse 6 on, the psalmist now goes back. And he now in detail gives why the nation that he longs to see walk in the inheritance of God, the inheritance that he longs to glory in, why Israel's not walking in it, why they're not resting in what God had for them, why they're not allowing themselves to trust God for what God said he would do. And when you get to verse 6, you find this reflective heart. This psalmist just steps back and reflects upon the past and the present of the children of Israel. And reflects upon it in such a way that the psalmist begins to realize, Father, the request of my heart, the longing of my heart to see and to glory now I know why I've not already saw it. And I know why I'm not able to glory in it. Notice what he says. He begins with a confession that was declared. He declares the confession here. Notice what he says. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Israel and Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. The psalmist says, Lord, I confess. We have sinned. Now you say, wait a minute, the psalmist here is, is not showing anything of a heart not resting in the Lord. I mean, he, he's boasting about the, the mercy and goodness of God. And he says, but Father, we have sinned. Why would he say that? Because as being a part of the people that have sinned, he sees himself as one people under God. It's the same thing that you find with Nehemiah. You remember in the book of the Nehemiah, the city walls and the gates were torn down. And Nehemiah heard about the destruction of Jerusalem. And what did he say? He said, Lord, we have sinned against you. Nehemiah didn't have nothing to do with that sin. But Nehemiah identified himself with the people that he was of. And he said, we've sinned. So what was the sin? Well, it's found in verse 7. Notice what the sin was. 
Our fathers understood not the wonders in Egypt. What does that mean? How many of you agree God manifested Himself mighty, bringing Israel out of Egypt? I mean, we could go through all of it, the plagues. the, the, the I mean, we could go through every aspect of what God did, the Passover, lamb. I mean, the, the blood up on the doorpost. I mean, the death angel passing over. I mean, we could spend hours talking about what God did just to bring Israel out of Egypt. And the Bible says, but yet in, in light of all that God did, His mercy, His goodness, in which I've been praising you for, He said, our Father. They didn't understand the divine plan of God and what God was doing. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. How many agree sometimes God does stuff that we just don't make sense to us? Sometimes God works in ways that we just don't fathom. We don't. How many agree it had to be confusing for Joseph when the angel said to Mary what he said to Mary. Because that would go against every cultural relevance that there was in that day. I mean, to do what Joseph did and to take on that reputation that he would have received by letting Mary, a virgin, be, be given with child. Be confusing. But it's only confusing if you don't understand what God's up to. And what Israel did not understand is all that God did in delivering them from Egypt was part of His divine plan and His divine purpose to bring them to the fullness of all that God had for them. But instead, study it out real close. You find out when God was trying to deliver them, many of them didn't want to go to start with. Why? They wasn't able to rest and trust God because they had forgotten who God was and what He had done. And then in verse 7, it says, The multitude of mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. You remember what happened at the Red Sea, don't you? You remember they got to the Red Sea? And they came up against the edge of the Red Sea, and what happened? Well, they got themselves cornered in, Right? They couldn't go right, they couldn't go left, they couldn't go back, then they couldn't go forward. So what'd they do? Well, Lord, you brought us here. Your goodness and mercy, we remember your goodness and mercy. Oh, God, thank you for how you're going to make a way. Oh, no, that's not what they did. What'd they do? You say, well, preacher, I don't remember. Well, I'm going to remind you, you say, Amen. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 14 real quick. Look at verse 10. 
They're on the red, at the edge of the Red Sea. And the Bible says, And Pharaoh drew nigh, came up towards him. And the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there is no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Now listen to this. This is an amazing statement. Is it not this, the word that we did tell thee in Egypt? In other words, Moses, we tried to tell you. We didn't want to go to start with. You say they didn't say that. They did. Listen. It's saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Let me tell you something. They far would rather have the bondage of Egypt than the troubles that might come through having liberty. For it had been better for us to serve Egyptians than that we die in the wilderness. You could look at a passage like Numbers, when Numbers chapter 11, when verse 5, when, when, when they were, God was given them manna and they were in the wilderness. Now remember, God never intended them to have manna. That was, their, that was their provision and their disobedience. If they would have obeyed God, they would have already been in Canaan eating the land of the corn of the land of Canaan. But instead, they wouldn't trust God, so they, God walked them around in the wilderness. And what God do? Well, he provided for them. He gave them manna. But here was the problem. They said, well, we're tired of that. They said, listen, we remember what was in Egypt. I mean, fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. Let us go back. I'd rather be in bondage and eat melons than be free and eat manna. Y'all getting the picture? Now watch this. I'm setting all this up. Because here's where it gets glory. You see the confession was declared. Notice the compassion that was demonstrated. So what would you do if you were God and they were doing all this? Aren't you glad you're not God? <laughs> I mean, you and I would have said, fine. That's what you want. Let them go back. By the way, there was times God did some of that. Y'all remember that? They said, we want something besides manna. God said, give them quail. How many agree they, they found out they didn't want to quail? But aren't you glad that many times when we're not trusting Him, we're not resting Him, God supernaturally does something on your behalf in spite of you? Watch this passage with me. This is an amazing passage to me. Nevertheless, there's that word. They grumbled, they complained, let us go back into slavery. Nevertheless, God, you brought us out here to kill us. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake. That he might make his power be known. Notice this, the compassion that was demonstrated. Here is Israel doing nothing but unbelief, walking in nothing but distrust, not giving one lick of faith to God. That God, you're able, no matter what the circumstance, you're able, I'm preaching to myself, is that okay? You're able, God. And what was God's response? 
Nevertheless, he saved them. Notice a couple of things in this verse with me. The reason for the deliverance. He saved them because they were his people. No! He saved them for his name's sake. He saved them so they wouldn't have to have any more hardship. No! He saved them for his name's sake. Liberty, how many times have I told you this? God didn't save you for you. God saved you for him. God didn't save you that you would have peace, joy, happiness, even though you can have all that in the Lord. God saved you for his glory. But we make salvation out to be all about man and what man gets out of it. And that's the reason so many make professions of faith and are lost. Because they never understand that their salvation is all about what God gets out of it, not what man gets out of it. But praise the Lord, man gets a lot. But God gets the glory for it all. This is the reason He delivered. Notice the revelation in the, de- in the deliverance. He says that he, might make, make, that he might make His mighty power be known. Let me ask you a question. When God delivered Israel in that Red Sea experience, you say, well, it was just Israel there. Nobody else would know about it because, remember, he killed Pharaoh and his army. So, I mean, who's going to know about it? I mean, really? Well, you asked Rahab if they heard about it. I mean, the spies came to the land of Canaan and encountered a harlot named Rahab. And she said to them, where you been? We heard what God did at the Red Sea. Listen to what I'm about to say to you today. God saved you for his glory and his glory alone. But God saved you for his glory that the testimony of your life in your salvation will be to the world that only God could have done that. Only God could change a heart. Only God could change my vocabulary. Only God could change my desire. Only God could change my hunger and my appetite. It's a testimony to the world of the power of God and his saving grace. And folks, if the world can't see you and how you live moment by moment, day by day, even in the secret places of your, of your own house, if people can't see the difference in you now than what you say you were before you were saved, I got news for you. You never experienced the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. Because if God saved you, His power will be seen. This is the reason for his deliverance. This is the revelation in his deliverance. But notice the reality of deliverance. Verse 9 through 11, I'm not going to spend much time with it, but verse 9 through 11, he rebuked the Red Sea. He dried it up. He led them, being Pharaoh's army, through the depths and through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him that hated him and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. In other words, he got Israel across, got them on the other side. He led Pharaoh's army into the, into the bottom and he closed up the Red Sea. Listen, the reality of the deliverance was this. God didn't just get them through for a period of time. God God totally delivered them. They'd never have to look over their shoulders again. 
They never have to fear bondage again. Let me ask you a question. What bound us in our, in our losses? Sin. All right, so let me ask you a question. Did God's saving grace liberate you from the chains? And you say, preacher, what are you saying? No, I'm not saying you're going to be sinless perfect, but I'll tell you this. God liberated you from sin enough that you're far different now than you ever were before. And when you do sin, it eats your lunch. And if it don't eat your lunch, then that means you don't have the Spirit of God to convict you when you sin. See, God liberated us. I'm glad God didn't just save us and say, all right, you know, Mac, I'm going to deliver you from some of these sins, but, you know, you're going to have to work for the deliverance for the rest of it. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? It was a total deliverance. Now, verse 12. All right, all that was the introduction. Y'all ready for the message? Verse 12. Here it is. Now, watch this. So God delivered them, fully delivered them, completely delivered them. Now the taskmasters are gone. Pharaoh's gone. They don't ever have to look over their shoulders anymore. God's parted the Red Sea. They went across on dry ground. God saw the Red Sea come back over Pharaoh and his army. How would you take all that? If you were standing on the other side and saw all that, how, what would you do? Would you just go, oh, well. Where we go now, Moses? No. What did they do? Watch it. Then believed they his words, and they sang his praise. Remember my title? Now I believe. Now here's what's wrong with it. How many agree you read this and you think, well, glory, they finally came to the reality of who God was. See, we, we look at this passage, we think, oh, well, praise the Lord, they finally came to themselves. They finally are now trusting God. Oh, no, this passage wasn't meant as praise. This passage was meant as condemnation. You say, why is that? Then they believe. So what did it take for them to believe? They had to see God work. What is faith? Faith is the evidence of things what? What caused them to sing the praises of Moses? The praise of the Lord, the song of Moses, if you will. What caused them to sing and praise God? They saw God work. Are y'all hearing me say amen? I was reading an old Bible scholar. Had nothing to do with this passage. But I was reading an old Bible scholar while I was laid up these last four weeks. Written back in 1893. Actually, it was a sermon he preached in 1893. And he said, here's his greatest fear. Now, this was in 1893. Can you imagine what it would be today? He said, this is my greatest fear in the church in the world. This was in England where he was preaching this. He said, this is my greatest fear about the church in the world. He says, we have trust in the Lord like we trust a pickpocket. And I read that statement, I go, what in the world is he talking about? Because that's what y'all are thinking right now, right? What in the world is he talking about? He went on to explain. He says, you don't have any tr problem trusting a pickpocket as long as you can see his hands. 
But when you get your eyes off his hands, you don't trust him anymore. Because the hand you don't see may have your wallet. You say, preacher, explain that. How's that relate to God? Because here's what Israel did. As long as Israel could see God's hands at work with their physical eyes, him parting the Red Sea, him destroying the taskmaster, as long as, God could, as long as I could see God at work, oh God, I'll trust you. Oh God, I'll praise you. Oh God, I'll sing your praises. But what about when you don't see God at work? Now, Liberty, y'all love me, say amen. It's been four weeks. This is the verse God used to prick me. Because I was laying in bed two and a half weeks with this muscle right here completely asleep. The main muscle in the front of your leg. For me to move my leg three feet to the left on the bed, my wife had to pick it up and move it for me. Thoughts began to come in my mind. You know why? Because I didn't see God at work. And I even told Mike Davis and Howie on the phone one day. I said, for all I know, I've preached my last sermon standing up. Now, let me agree, that was still a possibility. But see, here was the problem. I was having trouble accepting that. You say, preacher, why are you being so honest with us? Because if y'all are really honest with yourself, you go through the same thing. Maybe where you work. It may be business arrangements. It may be friends. It may be family. And things don't go the way you think they ought to go. And all of a sudden you begin to wring your hands in worry. You begin to stay up at night fretting and worrying. And when you do that, just like when I did that, it's because I couldn't see God's hands at work. Even though God's hands never stop working. You say, preacher, how do you know this wasn't real faith? Read the next verse. A rebellious heart. They soon forgot his works, and they waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Now I want you to listen to this in the original Hebrew. They soon forgot his works. Here's the way this reads in the original Hebrew. They made haste to forget. One Bible scholar said it this way. They were impatient until they forgot. See, here's what I've come to realize. The rest of faith is as such that when I can rest in the unseen hand of God, 
Just in his character, just in his nature, even when I don't see him work, that's when I'm truly resting. But if I need him to work for me to truly be able to rest and say, Oh God, I don't understand it, but it's hilariously okay. It's going to all be for my good and your glory. Hey, let me tell you something. When I can get there, that's rest. But here's what happens. When my faith is based upon what I have to see for me to fully, completely, and utterly trust God, then here's what's going to happen. The moment moment he stops working, the moment I forget. Now, I'm not going to go through all these verses with you, but let me just recap them real quick. When you get to verse 13 and 21 and 22, you see the evidence of forgetfulness. They forgot. Verse 21 says the same thing. They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. They forgot everything God had did, and they began to walk in their own ways, in their own will, and that which is pleasing unto themselves. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 10 and 11. Isaiah said the same thing of Israel. He said, Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. In other words, here's a, an example where they went down to Egypt to get help. And God said, You don't need them. All you need is me. And yet they wanted to do that with right in their own eyes. Why? Because they forgot God is enough. God is enough. God is enough. And so they went down. And, and, and what happened? Trouble after trouble. They're wearied in the greatness of their own way. Yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand. Therefore thou hast not grieved. Of whom hast thou been afraid or feared? That thou hast lied and not remembered me, nor laid it to thy heart. Listen to this. Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not. What does it say? It says God quit dealing with them for a moment. God quit speaking to them for a moment. And they never even recognized they was not being spoken to. They forgot. Verse 14 through verse 20 is the evidence of the flesh. Now, I'm not going to go through these verses, but I want you to listen to me real quick. In verse 14 and verse 15, you find out the three things. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, the three things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Y'all remember that verse? Say amen. You find out those three things were manifested in the children of Israel. In verse 14 and 15, they began to not listen to the counsel of God, and they began to walk, and they tempted God, and they gave themselves, and God gave them to the leanness of the soul. In other words, they began to live as they thought they ought to live without God. Then you come and starting in verse number 16, 17, and 18, what do you find? You find the pride of life. This is the story of Korah. And God had to open up the earth and swallow Korah. And what was the whole issue of that pride? And then in verse 19, 20, and 21, you have the lust of the eyes. They made a calf in Horeb. And worship the molten image. They had to see something to even worship it. Y'all get the picture? What they have to see God do before they would believe Him. So if they had to see God's hand at work before they would believe Him, what did they have to have before they would worship? Something they could see. And here's the end of it all. Look at it. It all comes together in verse 24. It's what I call a rejecting heart, but I want you to see it. 
Now watch this. Yea, they despised the pleasant land and believed not His Word. Now, I want you to see how this psalm comes full circle. What was the psalmist's desire? I want a glory in thine inheritance. What was the inheritance? The land of Canaan. Are y'all there? Say amen. The land of Canaan. He said, I want a glory in thine inheritance. But Israel had to see God work before they would believe. So what was the end result? They despised the pleasant land. Now, I want to translate this for you because this is something God just really used in me. Here's the way it's translated. The word despised means to reject in the Hebrew. The word pleasant means to desire in the Hebrew. But in the Hebrew, the word pleasant is after the word land, not before the word land. So here's how it reads in the Hebrew. Are y'all with me? Say amen. They rejected the land they desired. How many of y'all agree today, if you had asked Israel, even at the height of their disobedience, hey, do you want the land of Canaan? They said, yes. You say, preacher, how do you know? Because remember when they had the Baptist business meeting. Remember the 12 spies? They went into the land of Canaan, scouted it out, came back, and did what you cannot find in the Bible. They voted. Y'all say amen. amen. You ain't going to find it in the Bible. All right, listen, what'd they vote? Ten to two. Well, who won? We're not going. But read the next verse. But it's everything God said it was. It's glorious. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, but we can't go. Why? We can't take it. Did God ever tell them that they could take it? God said he already had it. It was already theirs. Matter of fact, God said it this way in Joshua chapter 1. Everywhere the sole of your feet touches, I've already given it to you. But see, they had pickpocket trust. See, the only way they were going to trust God for Canaan is they had to see the walls come down to Jericho. Because isn't that one of the reasons? There's walled cities. Giants in the land. And so they rejected what they desired the most. All right, I'm done. Listen to me. How many of y'all desire to walk in the victory of Christ? How many of y'all desire to walk in the peace of the Lord? The joy of the Lord? How many of you desire to walk in the reality I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus? I'm an overcomer not to be overcome. He's able to secure me in all temptation. He's able to provide my needs according to His riches and glory. How many of you are just longing for the day absent from the body to be present with the Lord? Here's what God stirred my heart with. Should we long for those things? 
But here's where God challenged me. If you long for it, why are you not walking in it? Because I've already given it to you. Did God already give the land to Israel? Did God already give you all those things I just mentioned? And here's what I learned. Life lesson for your preacher. The reason I couldn't rest in certain days of this, this episode is I forgot all that God is and all that God done for me. Are y'all hearing me say amen? And unconscious to me, in my unbelief, I was rejecting what I desired the most that God had already given me. Peace in the storm. My faith is based upon me seeing His hands at work. And not always on the unseen hand of God. But here's what I'm trying to tell you and I'm done. If you're having trouble resting, maybe you just need to be reminded that even when you don't see God's hand at work, it's always at work. And even when you can't see the tangible hand of God at work, God's character and nature never, ever changes. And He's faithful. And even in those times you don't rest as a child of God, nevertheless, He'll still deliver you. And you may be here today, and you just, Never been delivered. Can I tell you today? Maybe today God's at work in your heart and conviction of showing you your need. But you may be here today and like me, you just, you just sometimes find it difficult to rest. Maybe you just need to come and say, Lord, forgive me for my unbelief. And thank you. I don't even have the words to describe your matchless mercy and goodness and grace that you show towards me. But thank you for who you are and that you never change. Father, I love you, I praise you, and I thank you. Lord, you do your work for your glory during this invitation. In Jesus' holy, precious, and mighty name. And all God's children said,